The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. On this Lent series, we were focusing on the seven last words of Christ, and I think we got three of them. But uh, once the schedule is uh, altered at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, we'd hoped to be back together by now and had Dr. Rogers scheduled to preach, and we're thrilled that uh, his sermon was prepared and he was well able to come and share God's Word with us tonight. So, Dr. Rogers, come and share God's Word. Good evening, everyone listening and watching. It's good to be with you and good to be able to be in this pulpit again. I had thought I left the pulpit in the good charge and under the authority of associate pastors who I knew would carry things well. I didn't know they'd drive out all the members, but uh, not having expected that, I come back to a strange situation. But I'm glad to be able to reach many of you in your homes and have you share in this word, which really was the fourth word due to be delivered in mid-March uh, from the cross, and that did not happen. I'm first going to look at the beginning of Psalm 22, just two verses that are actually the words you'll quickly recognize that Jesus was praying from the cross, and then I'll read from Matthew's Gospel. First, Psalm 22. These are words from David, a psalm of David, which begins, just two verses, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, and I find no rest. And then over to the main text, really verse 46 of Matthew 27, the second last chapter of Matthew is the text, but I'll read a few verses there beginning at 45. Matthew 27, beginning at 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani? That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. And one of them went at once and ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Our Father, speak to hearts and minds that are full of unrest and fear and anxiety. 
speak to some perhaps who have never known what this was all about that was happening there in this drama of the cross. Speak to all of us with the power of your word to establish us in faith in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. I know that a question was asked of me many times during my uh, four and a half decades of pastoral ministry. I almost came to expect it sometimes from new members, especially if it was a new member who was attending our ministry without previous worship experience with the Apostles' Creed. And they would come, and the oft-repeated question they had was, Pastor, what does this mean that we say in the Creed, Jesus descended into hell? I answered the question many times, and I'll seek to do it again tonight. Because what we find is that the utmost terror of hell in the Bible is a soul separated absolutely from the mercy and the grace of God. Hell means facing God as the ferocious enemy of your soul when you are under the unrelieved penalty of sin and thus the all-holy God cannot look upon you with righteous favor. You know what society has done with hell, turned it into a joke. On a fairly regular basis, you can find cartoonists picturing some kind of underground cavern full of flames, and in the flames are devils with pitchforks and people making sardonic remarks. And I would dare say that even for many Christians who know better, if someone says hell or try to picture hell, that's what they picture, a place of flames, a place of flesh burning and inescapable pain. Well, I'm not going to try to say what all hell involves in the scripture tonight, but it does involve one thing, and the absolute primary definition of it is this. It is absolute separation from knowing God as your father. It was John Calvin who probably led the way for orthodox biblical interpretation to declare that for Jesus, hell was what he endured upon his cross. And therefore, witnessing the anguishing death of Christ, as I've read it from Matthew 27 tonight, ought to be something that would astonish us. It would change us as we read it. It would cause us to pause and almost freeze in our tracks as we would stand amazed at what this dying cry of Jesus was when he said, My God, why have you forsaken me? Now there's a whole wrong-headed stream of wrong interpretation on this. By the way, Mark also pictures this. Matthew and Mark are the two Gospels that have this word from the cross, the fourth word in, in the order of seven. And liberal commentators have come to it through the years, and I've heard it and read it in books. Here's what they say, something along these lines. They say, well, you've got to understand. Jesus was in the utmost position of physical and mental stress. He had pain and delirium clouding his mind when he made this cry of abandonment. He was out of touch with reality. 
Of course the Father did not turn away from Jesus, they say. God the Father could never desert his Son. Well, I tell you with dread certainty of the Scriptures behind me that that interpretation is not only absolutely wrong, it is not a statement of Christian faith. Tonight, as we look at Matthew 27, depicting Jesus on the cross saying, Father, or he's not saying Father, that's actually it, God, why have you forsaken me? We must be clear, he was not mistaken, he was forsaken. The Bible teaches that the Father forsook his Son, turned his back, and did so for a purpose, to win your redemption and mine. We see that even the natural creation seemed to shudder in verse 45 of Matthew 27 here upon this wail coming from Jesus. There was this pall of darkness and people have tried to explain it. Oh, it was an eclipse or it was a dust storm. We don't have to try to explain it. It was supernaturally caused, I sincerely believe. For several hours, an interesting fact emerges from the writings of Diogenes, the Greek philosopher who was alive at the time of Jesus, living in Egypt, actually. And you can date a particular saying that Diogenes, the philosopher, wrote from Egypt in 30 AD when Jesus, we believe, was crucified that year. Diogenes recorded the sight of a weird gloom in midday, lasting for hours in the eastern sky toward Palestine as he was in Egypt. Here's what he wrote. The philosopher said, either the deity himself must suffer at this moment, or he sympathizes with one who does. God, I believe, drew noonday darkness like a shroud around the hours when his son became the sin bearer for the world. And so tonight, as we briefly look at this passage in this tremendous moment in world history, I would urge you, in a sense spiritually, to take the shoes off your feet, for we are on the holiest of all ground. First of all, I ask you to realize what the word forsaken is about. It's one of the most tragic words in any language. It describes a relationship that once was strong and intimate, which has come into some kind of terrible train wreck or breach, like a wife forsaken as her husband would divorce her for another woman. I think of that word in an incident I had as a pastor many years ago. I prayed and visited a couple with my Maryland congregation at that time. This would be to visit a child in the hospital who today would be a grown man with children of his own. But at that time, he was a two-year-old boy, the only son of a couple in my church. And I went to visit the parents where they were at the hospital, and their son, two years old, was in a sterile environment due to problems with his immune system. And the parents had been instructed that uh, the best was being done for him, but they should not expect to have physical contact with him for a while because of infections being dangerous. And the doctor said, since you cannot touch him, we found with young children it's better that he does not see you. 
because if he sees you, he'll want to be helped. And I was in the hallway outside the room with a closed door, but through the closed door, we could hear the little boy several times cry out, Mommy! Mommy! And you can imagine what that did to the mom because she could not respond or speak or go in to comfort him at that time. The little boy temporarily was forsaken. Of all the promises that the Bible makes, people certainly prize the idea that God will never leave us or forsake us. I could cite dozens of promises along that line. Certainly the greatest would be perhaps Psalm 23. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. David also prayed in Psalm 27 and said, Hide not your face from me. Reject me not. And he prayed again in Psalm 51, where the worst thing he could imagine was for God to abandon him. And he said, cast me not away from your presence. Can any of us even try to guess what it actually meant for Christ the Son to be cut off from sensible, felt fellowship with his Father? This was a relationship that had existed from before time began, from eternity past. We can't put a date on the calendar when the Father and the Son began to fellowship one with the other. You go back to the beginnings in Genesis and you read the, the joint resolutions there. Let us make man. The Father and the Son involved in creation. And communication with the throne of God and the person of God had always been effortless for Jesus. At the tomb of Lazarus, you might remember, he prayed there, Father, I know you always hear me. It's as though Jesus had the highest level security pass on a string around his neck that he could show to the inner sanctum where God dwelt in unapproachable light. And he could always go there and always count on communication with his Father and from his Father. But on this day, on this time, this afternoon, with the darkness of supernatural gloom around him, there was no communication with the Father. He didn't even say, Father, when he prayed. He said, God, why have you forsaken me? There was no ministering angel to come. There was no dove as in his baptism in the river. There was no voice from the clouds saying, this is my beloved son. I'm in this thing that he's doing. Nothing came by way of heavenly communication. And for Jesus Christ, I say to you, the sinless one, hell was in that hour because hell is broken fellowship or no fellowship with God. Jesus became there, we think, the sin bearer for an avalanche of guilt that belonged to millions of chosen believers living in every age of history from Adam's day to ours. And hell for Jesus was succinctly stated in what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.21. There in one sentence, God made him who had no sin, who knew no sin, to be sin for us. Habakkuk 
The ancient small prophet was the one who said, God is too holy even to look upon evil. And the father could not look upon his son as the sin bearer. You might have not have thought about the fact that as we consider, have considered in this broken up series on Lenten words, the seven words from the cross, this fourth word is the only one that is not a statement or a command or a promise or a soothing reassurance. It's a question. And it's a question that didn't have an answer forthcoming right then. Jesus had to die first before the answer came. Jesus had to be cold as a corpse in that stone tomb for a while before the answer came. But I tell you, oh, if God ever answered any prayer made by a man since the dawn of creation, this one might have had the answer delayed. But what an answer it was that was due on the third day, Easter morning, when God answered his son's question asked on that Friday noon. So we have the word forsaken. It was real. It happened to him. But let's ask a little more of why did it happen in the second place. In light of everything we know about Christ being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, here we have in the agony of Calvary's darkness and this wretched cry given in his Aramaic language that he spoke in everyday speech, I think to signify his depth of humanity, that he spoke this language there, we have what is really the crucial moment. I've always thought of it. I was asked when this series was being planned, I think I was the first one approached, and I was asked which of the seven words I would wish to speak on, and I, I said this one because... To me, this is the crucial moment. This is the moment where the atonement makes its pivot as Jesus becomes the sin bearer. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John the Baptist said at his baptism. Well, here he is taking away onto himself the sins of the world. Isaiah 59, verse 2, reminds us that all sin cuts off the sinner from the holiness and the majesty of God, as the Lord said there in that uh, word of Isaiah, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face. The New Testament reiterates it. Galatians 3.13 declares with great clarity, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And 1 Peter 2.24 adds this, He Himself bore, carried our sins in His body on the tree. God could not smile on His Son. He could not pat His Son on the back and say, there, there, this will be over soon, this is all right. He could not communicate with the Son who was full of sin, who was sin. Can you accept that idea? Jesus was sin on the cross, and the Father could not communicate. He could not equivocate with sin. He could not bargain with sin. There was a mountain range of human guilt and pathetic transgression standing between God, the Father, the righteous Father, the Holy God, and the Son who was sin. 
And so, of course, the wrath of God was poured forth here. New Testament commentator William Hendrickson wrote a paragraph I'll quote here. He said this, The darkness meant judgment, the judgment of God on our sins. His wrath burned itself out into the very heart of Jesus. Hendrickson said, Our substitute suffered the most indescribable woe and hell came to Calvary that day. The Savior dove into it and bore its full horrors in our stead. Another perceptive writer is Dr. John Stott, who in his classic book, The Cross of Christ, said these words, We must hold fast to the biblical revelation of the living God who hates evil and is disgusted and angered by it in such a way that he vomits it. Stott said, God refuses to come lightly to terms with evil. We may be sure that when he sought a plan to forgive, cleanse, and accept ourselves as evildoers and give us repentance and new faith and new life, it could not happen by making any deals as a moral compromise. God must, Stott said, choose a way to do this that is equally expressive of his love and his wrath. How often do you hear that preached anymore today? Oh, God loves us. That's why he sent Jesus to the cross. Of course he loves us. But you don't understand the love of God until you understand that it was dealing with the wrath of God as well. And so Martin Luther, when he wrote on this passage, gave the title of his message in four succinct words, God, comma, forsaken by God. Ponder those words for this Easter preparation. Thirdly, we ask then what was accomplished here. Well, first of all, the great thing, the atonement sacrifice is happening here. This is it. If you point to some moment in the life of Christ when it all transpired, where the deal was concluded and the price was paid, this is it. The blessed good news of the gospel comes out of this horror of the son being forsaken. He went there into hell so that you and I don't ever need to go there. And he became the remedy for what should be every human being's most dread fear being resolved. If your dread fear is spending eternity in hell. Frankly, that's not most people's dread fear anymore because they don't think hell is real. The churches don't preach it. And if they come to it in the Bible, they conveniently skip over the doctrine. Let me illustrate this for a moment in terms of pure mathematical percentages. Right now, it's April 1, year 2020. And what's everyone in the world anxious about? You turn on the morning news show, the Today Show, they're talking about anxiety. Everyone's got anxiety. What's the ultimate anxiety about? Well, we might catch the coronavirus and die from it. And of course, that's a reality. And it's a terrible thing. I just heard of a man I knew and traveled to England with many years ago who has died from it. And of course, we should take all the reasonable precautions. And of course, we should listen to our health officials and so on. This is a serious situation. People are dying. But I want you to consider something. Consider 
the probability in mathematical terms of your worst fear, if it is the fear of coronavirus, what is the probability of your worst fear, dying of coronavirus, actually occurring? I believe the current population of the United States is somewhere between 330 and 340 million citizens. Earlier today, I heard them saying they're sort of starting to project worst-case figures now. Well, the United States might go beyond 100,000 deaths, 200,000 deaths. I heard one estimate of 250,000. That's terrible. I don't toy with those figures. Those are human souls we're talking about. And I don't wish to belittle this at all. But think of this. If it were the absolute worst case scenario, 250,000 or 300,000. By the way, that's half the number of people who died in the Civil War, which I believe was around 600,000. 250,000, if that is the worst case, what is that as a percentage of the total population? Well, think again, 330 or 340 million. If it's 300,000 that die, I work that out to be one-tenth of 1%. Your chances of winning the lottery are actually about equal to your chances of dying of coronavirus if you are not in active contact with someone who has it. Now, I'm not at all belittling the estimates about coronavirus deaths. Don't think of it that way. I'm, what I'm trying to say to you that we're dealing with something deadly and it scares the daylights out of us, but folks, People we rub elbows with, you don't have to shake their hands, just give them the elbow shake. And you're shaking elbows with somebody these days who's facing something far, far worse. For what if all 340 million of Americans had not heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and all of them one day die, which they will, and face the holy God and come to accountability before him for the fact that they lack the righteous covering of Jesus Christ to forgive their sin and stand in the place of taking that penalty away from them. What is the percentage? Not one-tenth of one percent. The percentage of those who will be judged and go to eternal death and separation from God is what? One hundred percent. Now, we know that's not true because there are many, of course, in our nation and in the whole world who do know to look to Jesus Christ in steadfast trust and claim his borrowed righteousness and claim what he did there, being forsaken of his Father. And they know that when they look to him and call Jesus Lord, they are promised bliss in eternity and safety in their Savior. All who claim that, 100% of them, are safe in Christ. But you see, Jesus the Redeemer was entirely forsaken by his Father so that a great number of people never need to be and we can count ourselves being called God's true children, his family, his forever friends. Amazing. The atonement was accomplished in the visitation of hell upon the head of Jesus on a Roman cross in 30 AD. Well, another application to take from here is not only the accomplishment of the atonement, that's the great thing, 
But something else for us to carry with us is that possibility for a believer in Christ who calls Jesus his holy Lord to know that we also may be in our lives deserted by God for a period of time. And yet in that sense of desertion and forsakenness, we can know that we are being loved unfailingly by him because we belong to him. The sensible withdrawal, the felt feeling of God's fellowship did not mean that the death of Jesus, the suffering of Jesus, was unobserved or unsupervised. It was not. He did not cease to be loved and loved intensely from a father who could not speak to him or fellowship with him in that particular moment. But yet we believe and we know that exactly at this time the father was looking upon his son with intense, passionate regard and affection, more so than was put upon him at any time. Pastor Walker referred in his call to worship to Isaiah 53. Verse 4 of that great chapter, the prophet wrote for God, he, looking toward Jesus, he was smitten, not by Roman soldiers, but by God and afflicted. And yet Isaiah then added a few verses later, verse 10 of his Verse, or chapter 53, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand and out of the anguish of his soul he shall be satisfied. You see, the father couldn't communicate with the son, not in those hours, but what the father purposed and what the father planned was being accomplished toward a morning of the greatest of all delight called Easter morning, the plan of the ages was being accomplished even though the son could not share fellowship with his father. Doesn't that tell us that we can never be so isolated from our God no matter what negative experience seems to be going on? You've been furloughed from your job. You don't have money coming in. You wonder if you're going to get sick. Your family's struggling. Where's God? God, why have you forsaken me? Well, if there's that sense that you've been abandoned by the Lord, let me tell you, certainly the experience of Jesus shows that God is doing things in those hours when we think we are abandoned. Like Job, we will come through that and we'll learn to say in the power of the Holy Spirit, although God might slay me, yet I will trust in him. Or we will learn to say what Psalm 42 says, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you disturbed within me? Put your hope in God for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And so in conclusion, folks, the cross of Christ guarantees that the momentary appearance of God's absence is never the last word on any situation for those who trust in Jesus as Lord. She's now regarded, I think, as a quaint subject of English literature, but the poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning was a Christian. She understood this cry of Jesus, my God, why have you forsaken me? She wrote this short four-line poem about it. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe had shaken. It went up single and echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from those holy lips amid this lost creation, and thus, no child of faith need use these words of desolation. Browning understood 
that because Jesus went into hell for us, we never have to have anything to do with the place. And the Savior who died absolutely alone and genuinely forsaken for that short time did it for a grand purpose to accomplish our atonement and to certify that you and I need never be solitary, friendless, or orphaned ever again. He promises today, and he'll keep the promise. I will never leave you, nor forsake you. I will be with you always, to the very end of the age. Thanks be to God. Father, our God, we are awed by what we read in this short text, this short narrative of Scripture in Matthew. Awed at how it fulfilled exactly what you predicted through the psalmist David so long ago, the very words that Jesus would utter. We are awed to know that one so high, one so divine, one so perfect would go into the face of the worst that the devil could devise and do it to accomplish our redemption. Father, will you work in powerful hope and faith and trust in your people this Easter season that we might come in just 10 days with a great rejoicing to say Christ the Lord is risen indeed and we are so with him. Amen.